0: You're listening to the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut, part of Acus Amplified, from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Kim Tucker from Tucson, Arizona, and you're listening to the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut. This is a podcast edition we are calling Shortcuts. You've heard us speaking with experts on topics from the Journal of Arthroplasty. On this type of episode, we will be functioning more rapid fire style, and we will be going through a number of articles from the recent journal, summarizing and commenting. If you are interested in what you hear, we encourage you to check out the full article. I'm joined here today by my fellow co hosts.
2: Brock Howell, I'm in Montgomery, Alabama. I'm Peter
0: Golds, I'm in Denver, Colorado. I'm Kevin Wise, resident of Detroit, Michigan.
1: Thanks, everybody, for joining in. I'm going to start with the first paper that I picked today. This paper is by author Gibbons, and it is called, Is Cementless Total Knee Arthroplasty Safe in Women Over 75 Years of Age? So this is a study out of the U.K. where they retrospectively analyzed 1,000 consecutive mobile-bearing cementless total knees in women over the age of 75. They looked at implant subsidence, and out of the 1,000 knees, they had four cases of subsidence. Three of these cases were asymptomatic and were not further treated, and one case of symptomatic subsidence was noted. This was treated non-operatively, as the patient was 92, and that was the choice made. They then looked at factors associated with subsidence and found no association between subsidence and deformity, varus versus valgus, oversized or undersized components. They found that radiolucent lines that were greater than 50% of the tibial surface did not correlate with subsidence, nor did radiolucent lines greater than 2 millimeter in any tibial zones. Unsurprisingly, components that were not fully seated were associated with radiolucent lines greater than 2 millimeters. However, Even those components that were not fully seated were not likely to subside. So overall, this study found that cementless total knee arthroplasty in women over 75 did not have a high risk of subsidence, and they concluded that cementless total knees could be used safely in these patients, irrespective of bone quality. So a couple interesting points that I found on this paper were that out of 1,000 knees in women greater than 75 years old, they had 766 patients with fully seated components and 234 with components not fully seated, but only had four of those subside. That number of 234 may be a little nervous. Any comments from you guys on that?
0: I guess my first thought would be I just hope that a higher percentage of the total knees we're putting in are fully seated, whether or not they actually go on to subside. I mean, I just think that sounds like a technical error that, that could be avoided that w- would also make me nervous.
1: Yeah. And on these ladies with the softer bone, I mean, I know you're trying not to hit them very hard, but you what I do in these cementless knees on older people or people where I'm a little worried about their bone qualities, I take my 15 blade and I actually try to push it under the implant. And if I can't, Get that knife blade under there I know that it's fully seated so I guess I was a little confused at how these ended up not being fully seated or when they noticed this.
3: When they say it's not fully seated do they define what that means because sometimes you, know, you can see on the just on the anterior chamfer or the posterior chamfer cut on like a lateral the femur it might not be down on that one or two surfaces but there definitely is good contact at least you know over the distal femur posterior, And, you know, usually over the anterior cut. So did they clearly define that and what that was?
1: That's a super good point. No, they didn't define it, but that totally makes sense now that you're saying that. Like, that's probably what they were talking about.
2: So I've had quite the swing in my practice when it comes to cementless versus cemented knees. I probably did four years straight of pretty much primarily cementless knees I didn't really have any significant issues outside of one, I guess I could call it a catastrophic failure where a femoral component broke about a year out from surgery, fractured. And then I kind of started having the issue when I was revising other cementless knees that were coming from outside, you know, getting a cementless knee out, is not that big of a deal. But the thing that bothered me was not having the ability to use maybe a semi-constrained polyethylene in a cementless tray and it not be off-label with this particular knee because one knee is used a lot around here. And so I have flipped back to pretty much cementing everybody. But the problem I had a lot of times with cementless knees, it's hard for me to evaluate a painful cementless total knee. I think we're really good at evaluating a painful cemented knee is it loose? Is it not? How much on growth or how much is okay? How much is not okay? I don't know how many cementless total knees y'all ever revised, but the tibia, yeah, the tibia can be tricky, but the femur, you can get a cementless femur off very easily, very quick. And sometimes it's so easy. It makes me a little nervous on how easy it is to get off. And so my practice is flip-flopped. I'm cementing everybody unless they're just really young, got really, really hard bone. I'll press fit those people. But I've gone back to the world of cemented.
1: You know, I, I really agree with that too. Like I've gone back to doing more cemented because I worry that I'm not going to be able to be confident in my fixation with the cementless. So same type of conversation that you just had, Brock
3: you know i'm about eight months into practice now and i kind of went back and forth during fellowship last year of am i going to go some all cementless cemented what am i going to do and brock kind of your exact point i saw a couple patients in clinic during fellowship and they had cementless knees done and they had pain and there was a little radiolucent line and we didn't know you know what to do there i mean you sent them to physical therapy And you're pretty confident that it's not loose and you're just going to follow them. And these people are kind of miserable and you just feel like you don't see that when you cement the knee in. And so what problem are we really trying to solve? I mean, I think the argument of a really young person that you want to make sure that the fixation lasts long term, I think there's a, a good argument there. But, you know, also, again, how many how many aseptic loosenings were we really seeing and a good cemented knee. I just I love doing a cementless knee. It's fast, it's fun. There's something more satisfying about doing that than cementing in a knee, but I don't know. I'm still not confident on the major problems that we're solving. I mean, for you guys that are doing some of them or have gone back and forth, I mean, what what do you feel like is the best argument to go cementless?
1: Like you said, young person, good bone. Would this article change your practice at all?
2: We all want to be fast, we want to be efficient, but I don't want that to ever be the reason for me to choose to do something a certain way. And if we're really stopping and looking at this, we're talking about cementless implants in patients 75 years or older. And I know young patients and longevity of the interface between a cementless implant and the bone is a great reason to use it in a 50-year-old. But a 75, 80-year-old, it's just hard for me to come up with a good reason to press fit that patient.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, I think, you know, this paper and there's, you know, there's been a, a couple other really good, you know, even randomized studies that have come out recently know, supporting the use of cementless total knees. So I think this paper adds to, adds to that and it's super important because people are using them. People do want to use them. There are some good reasons to use cementless knees and it's good to have solid studies like this that support the use of it. Personally, in practice, I think I'm sticking to cemented until I see a problem there. But again, I think this study adds to the confidence of if you're going to use it for whatever patient you're using it for, there's a lot of good work showing that this is a viable option in uh, today's implant. So I think that's really important.
1: Brock, do you want to go ahead with uh, your paper next?
2: Sure, absolutely. I picked the topic of dual mobility versus large femoral heads in revision, total hip arthroplasty, an interim analysis of a randomized controlled trial. And so this was a paper, Weintraub was the leading author on this. Ron Schwarzkopf was also on the paper as well. And it looked at, it was a multi-center randomized control trial, looking at dual mobility, whether or not they lower the risk of dislocation versus large femoral heads. And they defined a large femoral head as 36 millimeters or larger, undergoing revision total hip arthroplasty via a posterior approach. So they looked at 146 patients, 76 patients had a head range size of 36 to 59 millimeters dual mobility. And then they had a match cohort of patients that had just large femoral heads. And long story short, at a mean time range of 18.2 months, there is really no difference in dislocation rate between the large femoral heads and the dual mobility. And so this just raises a question for me, because personally, even in the revision situation, I tend to stick more with large femoral heads because a lot of times in a revision situation, especially if it's a both component revision situation, I'm using a femoral component where I'm able to control inversion, And I just haven't felt at least trialing in the operating room like a dual mobility has given me much more stability than a large femoral head or even dialing in a little extra antiversion into the stem or even using a face changing liner in the cup. So what's everybody else's thoughts here? Does this paper change your thoughts on using jumping to a dual mobility and revision situation or use, usually just using a large femoral head?
1: I think it's a really good paper, like uh, Peter was just mentioning on the last one, because it gives you support for what you think is best in the patients that we're doing right now. I mean, when I trained, we didn't have dual mobility, so I got kind of used to doing it with what we had, larger heads, face changing, like you said. Um, so I, I think that I would think about using a DM, but most of the time I'm going to use a just a bigger head.
0: Just on a technical standpoint, I was kind of surprised that they considered a 36 to be a large femoral head. Hmm. At least what I've seen, 36 is pretty routine. And a lot of the systems, not you don't need a huge cup to get to a 36. So I guess in, in my mind, I would think of a, like the cutoff being a 40. Once we're at 40, I consider that a large femoral head. I would start to compare more of a 40 versus a dual mobility. I wouldn't really think about a dual mobility versus a 36.
3: Did they break down different indications for revision and or there wasn't
2: enough? So out of the, the cases they did, 71 of them were single component revisions, 39 cases were both component revisions, 24 were re-implants as a part of a second stage, and they had seven isolated head and liner exchanges and four conversions of a hemiarthroplasty and then one revision of a hip resurfacing. So they did break down the reason for the revision in the first place. And so it wasn't just a bulk revision grouping.
3: Yeah. For me personally, I love 40, trying to use 40 heads, especially in, even in primary settings, if I'm getting a, a pretty large cup, I'll use a 40 head. Obviously the downsize is being able to have good length options on the head. Cause you're gonna not gonna get as, you know, as, as much as you would for, with a 36 or you know, dual mobility sometimes. But I think just, what this kind of paper shows, and you know, obviously I'm sure they did this, is that if at the end of the day you're trying to make up for an issue with the cup positioning or issue with the version of the stem, you're trying to, try to make up for that with the dual mobility, that it's not really gonna work, right? So I just think going back to the basics and making sure that if you're if you're revising anything, if the cup's out of position, you know, just change the cup. If the if the stem is, you know, not if it's retroverted or a neutral stem, you have to change it and you got to make sure the component's in the right position and then no matter what head size you're going to use it, it should it should work as long as you know you're you're uh, you're not trying to make up for um you know a malpositioned implant with a dual mobility that's probably just not going to work so the paper i chose is optimized tourniquet use in primary total nearthoplasty, a comparative prospective randomized study and this study was out of brazil uh, and it's a prospective randomized trial looking at uh, 127 Total neartoplasty patients, so they split into two groups, one without a tourniquet. Then the other group is what they called an optimized tourniquet use, which was inflation before the skin incision, deflation after cement, pressure to 100 millimeters of mercury above systolic pressure. And uh, they did not use a drain in any of these cases. When looking at both groups, they found no difference in all the metrics that they, they looked at, and those were timing of surgery, total blood loss thigh pain, knee pain, edema, range of motion, functional scores, uh, and complications. So for me, there's always been kind of two tourniquet studies that I've always looked to. One was Doug Dennis and Jason Jennings at a CJR, and they did a great randomized control trial looking at tourniquet versus no tourniquet. and you know, found that tourniquet use can actually cause quad injury and decrease quad strength. And then Matt Ost at Rothman did a large randomized trial looking at tourniquet versus no tourniquet with the support of being able to use tourniquets without any changes or complications. So, you know, I think this kind of adds to that. For you guys, what do you guys see more anecdotally with tourniquet use? And personally, you know, I've been been lowering the amount of pressure on my tourniquet since starting practice. I started 250 for everybody. Now I'm coming down to, to 200. And I've seen patients with big bruises on their thigh, quad pain. And so I'm just kind of interested in what you guys are doing and and what you guys see working. Because it sounds like in the literature, no big deal. But you know I think in practice, it actually does affect some patients.
2: It seems like I'm always trying to figure out how I can make knee patients happier, which is hard to do in, in the early recovery. I've done all sorts of different things. I've gone from, I've done tourniquet lists, I've done tourniquet at the pressure they we used in residency, which was 350. I now use 250 and I just haven't seen much of a difference. I try to be efficient with the surgery so the tourniquet's not up long anyways let it down um, before we close. And I just honestly haven't seen a lot of difference. I do know my blood pressure stays lower when the tourniquet is up as opposed to doing a knee tourniquet list. I'll still do tourniquet list knees in patients who have had bad vascular disease or things like that. But I just personally haven't seen any significant uh, I difference. I
0: think most of what I have seen with faculty is, anyone who's used to operating with a tourniquet it's hard to go back i think and so when you're comfortable operating with a tourniquet most people aren't going to you know try to go tourniquet list and then most people like you said there's enough literature to show that there's really no difference when you use it when you don't so why have that kind of bloody field if you don't need it i guess just anecdotally it would be hard for me to believe that a tourniquet you know none of us have probably been awake with a tourniquet on our leg but we've all had our blood pressure taken before and, you know, that goes up to, a, you know, the millimeters of mercury on that are much smaller than they are in a tourniquet. And so I can only imagine when having a tourniquet on for 250 for over an hour in your leg has to make some difference in my mind, but I guess, you know, to be determined.
1: Yeah, I use a tourniquet pretty universally other than when what Brock was mentioning with um, people with vascular disease. And what I have found on the patients that I've chosen not to use it, like if I'm doing intentionally doing a cementless knee or something like that. I think it takes me a little longer because I'm trying to see everything and I'm annoyed most of the time. So hmm. I mean, I I use it, but uh, again, I think that as you're training, you know, I think that's going to matter when people train tourniquet lists, they're going to be used to seeing more blood on the field and I'm used to not seeing it. So I think that matters in that situation. Kevin, do you want to present your paper at this sure. point?
0: Yeah. So the paper I chose is titled Long-Term Results, a Minimum of 20 Years of a Pure Proximal Loading Metaphysial Fitting Anatomic Cementless Stem Without Distal Stem Fixation in Hip Arthroplasty. Uh, it was published out of Korea. So this is a retrospective review where they looked at 523 patients, a total of 657 hips uh, consecutively from uh, 1995 to 2002. All these patients obviously received a cementless, proximal loading, metaphysical fitting stem. The mean age of these patients is 55 years old. They all had a posterior approach. And basically the results they were looking at were clinical scoring for these patients, radiographic, the rate of revisions, and the survivorship and how these stems were doing. So in terms of their results for their clinical scoring, 84% of patients had a Harris hip score of greater than 90 and the average is 93. So they did extremely well radiographically, 98% of the acetabular components and 99.2% of the femoral components were well fixed. So over 99% of these femoral components were well fixed radiographically. The revision rate, only two of their femurs required revision for aseptic loosening, and then there were three for infection. And then in terms of survivorship, again, over 99% of these femurs were surviving at over uh, 23 and a half years on average. And I chose this paper because at least where I am in my training to me this is this is the standard and it was kind of surprising to me that they had mentioned in the intro for this paper that there wasn't a lot of long-term data on these metaphyseal fitting stems that are obviously used to kind of reduce the stress shielding for something that's more diaphyseal engaging. I wasn't surprised that they did so well and I was just curious if, if the results surprised anyone else or if anyone else is not using one of these
2: stem designs. I use 100% percent seal engaging stem, short stem. I'm a DA surgeon, and so they kind of go hand in hand, and I can't imagine going back to using something that's more seal engaging So this doesn't surprise me at all. I've seen it ever since, I guess, I was in fellowship and residency. We probably did use some more seal engaging stems, but not since then. So it, it honestly doesn't surprise me at all. I'm the
1: same. I've been using a tapha fit for the my whole practice. I didn't read this, Kevin. Did, was it a collared stem or was it an uncollared stem? It was uncollared. Okay.
0: The stem is not actually in use anymore, but it's a very similar geometry to probably whatever whatever you're using. But yeah, it's colourless.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, it was a ceramic on ceramic, but that's a conversation for another day.
1: Yes, it is.
0: I would love to just kind of hear your guys' thoughts on
3: single wedge, double wedge, triple wedge, cementless taper tapered stem, you know, obviously there's been a big push towards more of these triple wedge stems, m- more metaphyseal filling. What are your guys' thoughts on how much of an advantage that is? Are we taking more bone from the proximal metaphysis that we maybe don't need to? You know, is it that much better than a single wedge or a double wedge? You know, what are kind of your thoughts with, with
2: where that's going? Personally, I use a triple with a collar. And that was from me moving from fellowship, from using a dual tapered wedge with no collar, more of a blade type stem. And since I have switched from that blade style stem to this newer triple fill filling with a collar, I cannot imagine ever going back. I feel like you're not relying so much on that pinch between the medial and lateral cortex, especially that you see that may not be a great fit in some of your older patients, especially when you get some of the older patients with large canals where you really have to get big on the stem, if it's a wedge type stem. And a lot of those types of stems, when you get up to such a big stem, the neck gets so long and it can really be difficult to deal with leg length and offset. And I don't feel like you have to be quite as aggressive with the newer designs that have the collar. And really that's exclusive with that. And I love it, haven't had any issues and I would never go back.
1: I'm exactly the same. I started off using dual and I, Agree. In my early in my practice in the first handful of years, I would actually, you know, I had a couple of these subside because I probably was undersizing and I didn't have a collar and I started taking x-rays and looking at my fit a little bit better. And it's kind of scary when you get up to those bigger sizes, especially in those little ladies with a really thin cortex and you're looking at it and like, oh my God, I gotta put a bigger one in. But I think with the Metaphysial fit that I use now, the triple, it's, I don't have that issue anymore. I also just love it and I would never go back.
3: Yeah. I just recently switched from a dual wedge taper to a triple. I would love to see it without a collar and see how that plays out, but I'm sure that'll come out sometime. What do you guys think about that kind of triple wedge versus doing a cemented stem? You know, every hip fracture cementing in women over 75 or people with osteoporosis, I'm cementing even on on primaries. Do you think that those newer kind of designs can make up for that and you don't need to be cementing these or are we still in the cementing camp for hip fractures and and osteoporotic at-risk patients?
1: Well, the data shows that cementing is the right choice for that, but man, I hope the data comes out soon with the, <laughs> the triple wedge so I can do that instead.
2: No, I, I cement all of my hemiarthroplasties, as tempting as it may be, to use more of the metaphyseal fitting stem. I mean, I asked myself, why are we even here in the first place? It's because they broke. And so it's really tough to want to have to take that patient back to the operating room two weeks later because they have a periprosthetic fracture afterwards. So I cement all those. And if somebody has very thin C stove type, type femur, and even if I'm doing a primary total hip, I'll still cement those Mm -hmm. patients as well.
1: Well, thanks so much to all of my co-hosts here. And if you like what you hear, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like us to cover anything in particular, please email us at joathecut at gmail.com.
0: Thank you for joining us for the Journal of Arthroplasty's The Cut. Visit acus.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.